Welcome to the DJE Podcast, where you will learn about real estate investing from real life examples. Here's your host, Devin Elder. Hey guys, welcome to the show. Today we've got Kimberly Marie as our guest. She's a doctor of physical therapy, um, among many other things which we're going to get into, but she's also obviously a real estate investor starting out with residential fix and flip and moving into multifamily, which we'll talk about. Um, but without further ado, wanted to introduce you. Kimberly, welcome. How are you? Yeah, doing great. How are you? Thanks for having me on. Doing great. Yeah, thank you for, for joining. Um, for those that haven't met, that might be, met you, that might be listening, where are you based out of? I'm in Indianapolis, Indiana, and that's where all my holdings are. Gotcha. I love it. So we, we employ a similar philosophy. I want to be able to get to all our stuff in a couple of minutes from the office. <laughs> Was that an intentional thing for you? Do you just happen to be in a good market? Uh, what, what's your thought on keeping it all local there? Yeah, it was a little bit of both. I kind of fell into real estate investing. I didn't intend on it right away, but Indianapolis has been great. I mean, it's a very landlord friendly state. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and it, there's a whole lot. Excuse me. Sorry. Excuse me. Sorry about that. No worries. <clears throat> Hopefully we can take that out in the editing process. <laughs> but um, sure. yeah, no. So I love Indianapolis. It's, um, it's a growing city. Um, it's a low tax rate. Very easy to evict tenants if you have to. And um, it's a low cost of living. You know, it's a really strong market. So I love Indianapolis. <clears throat> That's great. Yeah. Um, I think there are a lot of advantages to focusing on one market. Not that it's uh requirement, but there's some really nice advantages. I'm not familiar with that market. What, what are some of the, I guess, you know, we're always looking at jobs, right? What, what are the, what are the industries that are kind of supporting job growth? So what is it in, in, in Indianapolis? Yeah. So Indianapolis is a huge tech hub. So um, back in 2013, Salesforce acquired exact target and that was a multi-billion dollar acquisition. Wow. So, okay. Yeah. And when that happened, it kind of made people on the coast look at Indianapolis. And so we're a huge tech hub. And, now, was um, Exact Target based out of Indianapolis? It was, yeah. And so yeah. now Salesforce, yeah. So they took over like one of the largest towers downtown Indy was um, Chase Tower. And so they bought that out and now it's Salesforce Tower. It's one of the biggest um, buildings downtown. And also Indianapolis has the second largest FedEx, second largest FedEx hub in the world. So, and with it being the quote unquote crossroads of America, it makes it really easy to travel through with all the major highways and everything like that. So I would definitely say between the two of those, there's like a ton of job growth here. Yeah, that's great. Um, job growth and landlord friendly. That's what we want, right? That's what we want in a market. Exactly. <laughs> what have you guys seen? Just this is more from my curiosity because we only invest in one market essentially <laughs> as operators. Um, what, what's, uh, what's price per door on a, you know, eighties vintage multifamily in Indianapolis. Yeah. You know, kind of ballpark. You yeah, with COVID, I think it's been really hit or miss, you know. Yeah. Um, when I I have a 23 unit, that's my largest holding. And when I bought it, it was like 30 a door and it was a C class. Wow. Yeah. Um, but now I walked a, a 28 unit last week and they wanted 40 a door, but it was 50% occupied. It needed a ton of CapEx. It was kind of a mess. And then the other ones I was looking at, I saw a 60 unit that they wanted like 60 a door. 
So it, I think it's kind of all over the board. Sure. But yeah, those numbers for sure. For, yeah, for those numbers sound pretty, pretty attractive actually. Just on their own versus kind of what we're seeing in San Antonio is a little bit north of that. Well, let's back up a minute. And, and how did you, you mentioned kind of falling into real estate. You mentioned doing some residential fix and flips, that type of stuff. What, what was the genesis there? How'd that start for you? Yeah. So I'm actually a physical therapist. So um, I started kind of in the corporate thing. And um, when I went back to school to get my doctorate degree is when I fell into real estate, I was pretty young. I was 24 um, and I had bought my first house in a gentrifying area. So that's how I started in single family because I was just kind of stalking all of my neighbors, like looking at all the houses on the market. Sure. And when I saw what was going on in the area and I had just decided to go back to school, I was like the typical, oh, I'm going to flip a house and pay off my student debt. And so that process started. And once I got into it, it was obviously a big job. And so I wanted to do something more hands-off as I progressed through my doctorate program. So then I kind of transitioned into the single family buy and hold, and then eventually the multifamily commercial a few years ago. So it was kind of like the typical progression, residential, commercial kind of thing. Yeah, you do see that a lot. So was that when you started with that first house, did you have your eyes set on something bigger down the road or this just kind of naturally unfolded as you learned more and you went through the process? Exactly. It naturally unfolded. I, I didn't really have any real estate background. It was all, you know, I, I have an entrepreneur at heart, but I just kind of was like one thing led to the other. And I always kind of had my eyes set on what my goal was because I knew I wanted to be financially free and passive income and pay off my debts and all the typical things. And so as I got older and as my goals changed, multifamily commercial made so much more sense. Yeah, that's right. That's right. For a lot of reasons, for sure. Those first projects, how were you financing those? Yeah. So the first one was a complete guts of the stud flip. And so when I bought my first house, I got really lucky in the area that I bought in. And so I was flipping a house literally four blocks over from where I was living. So I understood the area really well. And I knew that the area was gentrifying really fast. And so I actually refinanced my personal house twice in the first year. And I pulled about 70 grand out of my house. And so that's how I like bought the house and got the first phase started of demo framing, all that stuff. And then um, my mom kind of came in later. I was, I kind of freaked out one time and called her and was like, Oh, I don't know if I want to do this. I'm going to sell. And I was talking to her all throughout the process of finding it, buying it just as like more of like a friend, like telling her what's going on. So she understood my process really well. And when I was like, Ooh, I don't know if I'm going to do this she became an investor. She's like, all right, well, let's go. Here we go. And so she leveraged her personal home. She refinanced, put a HELOC on it, did a cash out. And so between the two of us, we kind of pooled all our finances together. Like we went all in, I sold all my liquid brokerage accounts. And so did she, except for her retirement, of course. So we pulled together about 250K to get that done. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that was that first project. So gut to the studs rehab is is pretty involved. You're dealing with a lot of variables, contractors and things like that, especially for a first project. Did you have a mentor or what did you just kind of read a book and go buy a property? What, that's, a, that's an ambitious first project. How'd you go about that? Yeah. Again, kind of fell into it and just was like kind of trial by fire. And I think the thing is like, I didn't really like have a coach or a mentor or anything at the time because I was living in the area. And my biggest thing was I felt so confident in what I was doing um, not the processes, of course, but I knew that, hey, I know every single neighbor. I've walked all the houses. 
the ones that had already been flipped, I walked it before it was flipped and after it was flipped and I'd walk by during the process. So I really felt like I was an expert on my area and I knew what other flippers were doing, what other homeowners were doing. And so it kind of eliminated a lot of the risk for me. So even though, yes, I did put in 250 K into this first flip and it was quite an undertaking. I knew that I would certainly sell it because of what I was putting in there and I was personally living in the area. So I, I kind of like underwrite things a little bit differently that I don't really, I look at the numbers of course, and the spreadsheets and all that, but I'm more like boots on the ground. Okay. How am I feeling in this area? How do I like, what's a homeowner want those types of things. So I think just the way I look at it was a little bit different. And the fact that I was living in the area as a consumer first really helped that process. Yeah, no doubt. There's no substitute for it. And it's kind of impossible to stick that those intangibles into a, into a spreadsheet. Um, people get into a lot of trouble when they try to do that. So you had your basis, what you bought it for. You had an idea what you're going to put into it. And you knew there's a big enough delta there that, hey, it's got to make money, right? Unless something just catastrophic happens. Yeah, exactly. For sure. And we ended up selling that for 318.5. So it was a pretty good delta on that first one. So, and I think the first deal is the most important one. If I would have did really crappy on that and didn't do my research, I probably wouldn't still be doing real estate today. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. People get burned, lose money and that's it. They're done. Real estate's awful and they're, they're, they're out. I've seen plenty of those. <laughs> yeah, that's terrible. <laughs> yeah. So you had the success with this first flip. Um, was it a rinse and repeat after that? You said, hey, let's, that made money. Let's go do it again. Or, or did you try to change strategy at that point? Or what did it look like? It, it was a little bit of rinse and repeat, but a little bit of the process. So when I bought that house, I was the first house literally in that side of the neighborhood. Like I crossed mm. over a dividing line at the time that nobody would go to. And so what I ended up doing was I bought literally every single house surrounding this one in the center. Right. while I was under construction. So a lot of people I knew would come walk by because I felt the same way when I first bought it. I was like, Ugh, like, what is, what are these neighbors? Like, am I going to die? Like, or, Am I safe? So I kind of took the problem houses all around my house. So when people would come through for open houses or for walkthroughs, I had this binder that they could literally flip through and say, Oh, this one's the house next door. Here's the blueprints of what's going to be built there. And here's mm. this one. So I kind of was able to control the area that way and put these homeowners minds at ease and say, Hey, I know this looks crappy right now, but you're going to buy at a great time with immediate equity because all of your neighbors are about to change. So by the time I sold that house, my goals had shifted over, like I said earlier, to more of a passive route. So I was more focused on at the time, single family rentals. So I didn't want to do these huge gut to the studs rehabs, drop a quarter million dollars every house. So yeah. Once I sold that one house, I had a couple others going, but I, I ended up just offloading a handful of them to other investors who then started to flip them for me. Cause I couldn't do eight houses at one time. I just didn't have the resources for that. So I was doing one house next door and then here, I sold that one. And I sold that one to these other investors that I knew were going to build a good product on the street. And so then they were pretty much doing the work for me at that point. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. What, what's your process for, working with contractors on a big, on a big flip project like that? Yeah. My process now is different than it was back then. Sure. I bet. <laughs> but, um, you know, it always starts in the planning phase. I go to my contractor and say, Hey, here's what I'm thinking. Here's the size lot that I have here are what the comps are around the area. And here's what I'm thinking I want to put into it. 
And then they go to their designer and we all kind of meet up and draw up like three different houses that we can build. And then I say, okay, I'm going to change this around. And you know, it's all that planning phase. And then once it's planned, you go to the city, pull permits, get variances if you need it and off to the races. Got it. Have you been able to find some contractors that you are able to do repeat business with, or has it been kind of a rotating door that it sometimes is? Yeah, it was definitely a rotating door, but now um, I would say within the last year, year and a half, I have found my contractors that I'm going to stay with because they're just really professional. They do great work. I mean, they built the home that I'm sitting in right now for me um, and they, they, they're just great. And so they're very organized. I like their processes and they have their designer, their architect, their field manager, pretty much all in one roof. So it makes it oh, easier yeah. to go like, to five different offices to get one thing done. I go one place and it's all right there. Yeah, I love it. That's huge and can't be, can't be uh, overestimated how important that contractor is for getting those projects completed. Oh, so God. you're, you're flipping house. I, I love the idea of kind of controlling a market or making a market. I mean, that's, uh, I, I don't know that a lot of people have that opportunity a lot of the time, but it sounds like you have really good timing and a good opportunity to do that and kind of sell the dream on, uh, on that neighborhood turning around, which is really cool and kudos for pulling that off. What, at what point in this journey did you start to say, okay, you know, you want to go more passive and you want to go bigger, right? Cause now you're doing multifamily stuff. And what, what was a catalyst for that, for that turning point for you? Yeah. So I think it was after I sold my first house, like the first flip. I mean, obviously mm -hmm. we made 50, 60 G's on that. So that was like, wow, this is great. Um, but while it's so great now, that's it. Like you made money and then that's done. And now if I wanted to do that again, I'd have to go through that entire thing again. And so while it was a lot of money, if you calculate out your hours that you put in all of the late nights, going to the place every single day, you know, and I, at the time I was in a doctorate program, I'm still working as a physical therapist, seeing patients, and I'm still trying to do real estate. So it was just a lot of hands-on work. And right. so to me, I was like, okay, how can I go on a month long vacation away from Indianapolis and still make this money? And so that's when the passive route kind of make seemed to make more sense. And right now, for instance, tomorrow morning, I'm closing a refinance on my building and I'm walking out with like a couple hundred thousand dollars by me literally just doing nothing. And so I'm like, okay, that's what's up. I can keep my building, keep all my processes in place, continue to bump rents and do my you know, processes for a multifamily building. But now I'm walking out with like way more than 50, 60 grand and I'm still keeping right. my and it's cash flowing month to month. And so to me, that's like, it makes way more sense. That's way more in line with what I want to do and my goals and like the lifestyle I want to have. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. Tax-free too, right? You pull out a exactly. couple hundred grand on refi. And it's not a taxable event, which is really exciting. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's the power of, of being an owner. You know, um, it's, it's not always about cranking out these transactions, although flipping and transactions, that could be a good way to get started or build up if you, you know, for folks that are starting with not a lot of cash, it can get the job done. But I was, I always thought about it like bartending, like, Hey, it's good money, but don't make your plan. Bartending. Um, <laughs> It'll get you started. Exactly. It could get you out of a day job. It could get you equity to start in your business. But I get more excited about recurring revenue now um, because the first of the month just shows up really, really quick. And oh, I know. Exactly. Recurring yeah. revenue coming in. Yeah. Um, and I think everyone wants to start with a flip though, because they like the idea of it. But I think a lot of people and myself included don't realize everything that goes into it. 
but I was really fortunate that I was living in the area that I was doing it in. So I, and I was like kind of obsessive personality over here. Like I knew every single house. So, and I feel like a lot of people who might start with flipping, don't do their research like that. They just see a cheap house say, Oh, I'm going to do this, this, and this and sell it for this. When they don't really have any basis to go off of, they didn't do their research or they're using comps that are in a completely different neighborhood. Cause I see this still, um, a lot of different pockets around Indianapolis. You could be five blocks away, but you can't really use that comp for this house if there's like a huge highway in between or a river or something like that. That's a dividing thing. And a lot of people, especially if they're new in real estate, don't realize those things. And so I've seen plenty of people get burned. And like we were talking about earlier and never do it again, because I'm like, well, wait, why did you do that though? Like you should do more research before you go head on like this to do that. Cause it takes a lot of education first. It really does. I remember I sat down with a friend who wanted to show me a project. He was really excited about a single family project. I said, well, send, send me the numbers. I'm going to plug it into my model. It was a simple one page model for underwriting flip houses. And I said, you know, I'm showing this house is going to lose you $10,000. So if you want to just pay me 5,000 right now as a consulting fee and walk <laughs> away from this project, that would be a better financial outcome for you. Like you didn't even run the most basic numbers or make any assumptions about overages or cost of capital, anything. And, and so uh, I don't know. I don't know if the TV shows are to blame for people just getting excited about wanting to flip a house, but um, it's, it's certainly work and it can work, you know, but it's, it's certainly work. So. Exactly. And not only that, I mean, the people who aren't underwriting correctly, if they're like, Oh, I'll do the painting or I'll do the cabinets. And then it's like, well, how many hours, you know, you're, you may as well go, you know, bartend. Like you said, you can make great money there. Like for the amount of hours that you're putting in yes. to get this done, it's like, you know, you got to pay yourself. Like, what would you be paying a trades trades person? You have to at least pay yourself that if not more, because for yeah, me, my, a- my hourly rate, geez, like I would much rather go and find an apartment deal, like rather than paint a wall and save a couple hundred dollars. You know what I mean? <laughs> Yeah, I see people making that mistake a lot. You've got a highly compensated individual and whatever their hourly rate is as a professional, and they're just trading that away for a $10 or $15 an hour job. And it's, it's just a bad trade. It's just a bad trade. But people don't seem to put that together that um, they've got to have that in the equation. And then your enjoyment of life. I like that you mentioned your goals around freedom because I think real estate, I mean, that's what attracted me to it. It attracts a lot of people to it is this, is this lifestyle kind of first. And you really got to keep that, that focus there. Otherwise it's easy to just kind of get run over with just creating another job for yourself. So you um, sound like you've kept that, that freedom and the aspiration of being an entrepreneur kind of, kind of the forefront. Has it been challenging over the years of doing this to say, Hey, look, I got into this for freedom and I want, I need to make sure I'm taking those vacations and things like that. Has that been a challenge for you or has that come naturally? Oh, that's man. I travel all the time. Prior to COVID, I was gone like every weekend, every other. So I love to travel. That was not a challenge whatsoever, but also I'm in Indianapolis, but my family, my sister just had a baby and she lives in Wisconsin. The rest of my family's from Chicago. You know, everyone's like not here. Like I'm literally the only person here in the middle of Indianapolis. So um, I I love to travel. I love to meet people. I love to see the world. So yeah, no, I've not had to remind myself to enjoy it at all. I'm always enjoying. So yeah, I love it. That's, that's, that's the kind of story you want to hear, right? About from a real successful real estate investor is that they're, they're not just grinding it away a hundred hours a week for some big payday someday. They're, They're living it now. So I love it. 
I mean, oh, I do grind 100 hours a week. I mean, geez, I'll be working till 11, 12 at night sometimes. But I mean, I never lose sight of, okay, why am I doing this? I don't want to run myself into the ground, get burned out and resent this. You know, I'm build, I'm doing this because I know there's going to be a great payday. And like, like for instance, tomorrow, I'm going to do that refi. It's like, okay, all of those hours of, okay, here's how I'm going to improve these units. Here's how I'm going to bump rent. Here's how I'm going to increase the NOI. Boom, here you go. Here's your reward tomorrow. So right. it's, you know, you always got to think work hard, play hard kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, no, I love it. I, I love it. Um, how are you approaching your multifamily, I guess, kind of in terms of management, right? I mean, you've got, uh, you've got these um, kind of sub 30 unit uh, properties, which can be interesting from a management perspective. Are you having a, a resident on site handle some stuff as a third party management? How do you approach that? Right now it's all third-party management because it's just too small to have someone on site. And sure. like I said, it is a C-class building. So I've been pretty lucky to where a lot of things, I, I can just make a, a, a call or two and have a meeting every quarter or something with my third-party manager and pretty much things are handled. Um, and it's, it's extremely hands-off. Like I barely go to the building. I went there before the appraisal like a couple of weeks ago and that was the first time I was there in like four months. So it's, it's very hands-off. And that was my goal to getting into multifamily too. I don't want to have to go to my buildings all the time. Cause you know, my goal is to have like a thousand units. So I don't have to visit my buildings all the time. So it's very hands-off third party and I have good communication with the property manager. So that's been good too. And you know, I just get the money at the end of the month. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. That's the way you want to do it. Love it. And so that, that'll let you scale too. Is, are you, are you and your new acquisitions seeking similar kind of types and size assets that you have now? I would like to go bigger. Um, I set a goal for myself in the next three months to close at least 60 to 70 units. And then I'd be above the hundred unit mark for myself. Right. And I think I can do it. I mean, I'll have the resources to do it. I just think right now is such an odd time to find good deals with the pandemic. I just feel like sure. they're like, like the deal I told you about earlier, it's like the place was 50% occupied and, you had to redo all of them. And it's just like, okay, why are you wanting 40 a door? There's like nothing that makes sense in this underwriting. Like, so I don't know, like, it's just, it's hard to find a deal right now. So I, I've been kind of going out on my own, like driving by and looking for owners on my own, something that's not listed. And um, I've been having pretty good luck actually, but um, a lot of people don't want to sell right now either. So one kind of wants to hold on and see what happens. So we'll see. Yeah, it isn't. It is an interesting time, that's for sure. Hopefully, we're closer to the end of this uh, this co this COVID ride than we are to the start. What um, what type of financing are you doing on these projects? Is this just your capital, no investors? Are you looking at syndications, or how are you approaching that? Yeah, I'm learning about syndications through David Tupin, um, but right now I haven't syndicated yet. Um, I've been my mom is still a, a good investor with me, so her and sure. I. My sister is also an ophthalmologist MD, so she also invests a little bit. So between the three of us, we've been able to do it on our own. I'm open to partnerships, but um, I think right now I would like to have 100 units on my own just because that's what I, I know the best. But again, I haven't found a big enough deal for it to make sense. Like if I found a 100 unit, 200 unit deal, that was like a slam dunk. And I'm like, hey, I got to go raise 4 million bucks. Could I do it? I'm confident I could, but I just haven't had to yet. So sure. um, up to this point, it's all been on my own. Yeah, that's fantastic. I don't think there's anything wrong with that approach. And if you can continue to scale that, it's a lot simpler. And, and your decision-making process on anything, whether you want to refinance, sell, you know, 
anything you want to do, you don't have to run it by any partners. That's a pretty ideal situation to be in. So. Yeah, exactly. Cause my family is very hands-off. Like I said, they don't live here. So they're like, Hey, you do your thing. Just take my money and double it for me. That'd be great. So. Yeah. Yeah. Take the money, go make more of it. Exactly. <laughs> what have you found on the, on the multifamily um, kind of value add components uh, that that's, that's the biggest bang for the buck for you that, you know, the, the renovations or other things you're doing that can, that can push NOI. What's been working for you guys or for you? Just, yeah. It depends on the building. Yeah. Um, because the building that I currently have, um, I was able to kind of bump rents without doing a ton of CapEx or a ton of value add. It was like all very small things that really did me well. Like, and just like little like operations thing behind the scenes. Like for instance, I had a lot of like section eight in there that the utilities were included and the whole amount was pretty low. And so I'm like, okay, well we can keep the section eight, but let's bump it to more of their max voucher amount or little things like that, like paint the hallways or redo the doors or like little things like that. Um, for buildings that I've been looking at, I think a lot of it has to do with like the location of the building itself. Like what I was looking at was very under market for the square footage, the amount of bedrooms and bathrooms per unit and where they were in Indianapolis. And I'm really lucky to where I'm constantly driving around or walking or meeting people who are living there to know like what kind of unit is this person living in? Okay, it's completely updated and they're paying X amount. Then I can go and look at this building that I just walked through. Like, okay, if I replace the floors, take out this wall, do this and this, like this can bump the rents like five, $600. That to me is like, oh, okay, that's, that's worth it. So I'm very much like, I don't like to just look at it on paper. I like to see the unit that is already redone and then see the unit that I have to redo. And with my background of completely rebuilding custom homes, it's, it's a pretty lightweight lift for me. I can look at that and be like, oh yeah, like no problem. Take out a wall, no problem. Completely redo a kitchen and bathroom, easy. So I like to just see it in person. Yeah, that makes sense. It's funny having, once you do those big flips, the the renovation on a multifamily unit is almost comically easy, right? It's like- Very, exactly. I so mean, I feel so lucky. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, we have people sometimes that are, you know, somebody's new to the business, they want to learn more, they want to go see a unit. It's like, hey, man, once you've seen one, you kind of seen them all. You got a vinyl plank flooring, two tone paint, new fixtures. Yep. You know, maybe <laughs> exactly. we take out a wall, maybe. Uh, but that's kind of it. You almost have to restrain yourself because there's no, there's really almost no like fun design element the way there would be. I'm sure if you're gutting a house and doing a grand kitchen and all this, that, that part can be kind of fun on the design side. On the multifamily, it's like, hey, there's really none of that. <laughs> I mean, just... You know what though? What I found is there could be yeah. a light fixture, you know, those, the one center like bowl lights that you have. If you change that out to have like a couple different arms and three different light bulbs all pointing in different directions, the way the light hits the room is totally different. And yeah. if you have cabinets, if you replace those, um, the handles on cabinets and kitchens, completely changes the way the kitchen looks. So there's very little low cost things that you can do. What is a light fixture? $90, a hundred bucks. So little things like that, where a room can look really dull and then you change the light, the way the light hits, bam, done. Or the kitchen, the fixtures, the way the light hits the fixtures, little things like that. So you never know. Yeah. There's, there's a little, you know, sometimes we'll do a backsplash and it's like, you know, this big, but it, it didn't cost anything, but hey, <laughs> yeah. there's not a lot of space to work with and we're going to make it look nice. And it, uh, it has an impact. They lease up and there's, there's premiums. So, I mean, yeah, there you go. 
what kind of um, financing are you doing for these type of projects? Is it local banks? Is it what, you know, what have you found success with there on the debt side? Right now I've all been with local banks because the buildings that I've been looking at are just too small. Cause sure. when you're a million, it's really hard to find, you know, someone, cause then you like above a million, you could just do Fannie Freddie and it's one, two, three, go. But so I've been just looking at local banks right now and just trying to make that make sense. Obviously it's my goal to get bigger. So hopefully, you know, once I find a bigger deal, I can go the Fannie Freddie route, but right now it's just been local. Was it a challenge when you initially approached them on some of these projects? Did you really have to pitch it or did they just kind of fundamentally understand the numbers or how, how did that work for you? I got really lucky because the banker that I was working with for um, a couple of my single family rentals and then eventually like one of my construction loans for my full flip was the same guy. And I, I swear, I felt like a celebrity anytime I walked into his office or called him. It's like, we'll take care of that in three minutes. And bam, bam, like really great to work with. I loved him so much. And so it, it was so easy to finance the apartment because I just stayed with him. And he unfortunately ended up leaving the bank that I was at, but um, kind of followed him wherever he went. But he like, it, it was so easy to finance it. I didn't really have to pitch it because they kind of were with me from day one of my journey and they kind of yep. with me. And so he was just like, yeah, like, let's do it. Let's do this. And he was just like right on my team. And I feel like that's a big, big, big component to getting good financing is having that lender on your side. Yeah, I totally agree. I had a similar situation with my first multifamily as a six unit and I used a bank that I'd done some single family stuff with and it was a similar experience where they just said, hey, we like you. We like this relationship now that she's since left that bank and I'm, I, I don't love my relationship with that bank anymore, but uh, at the time it, it worked out good. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, uh, sometimes I, you know, you try to follow those guys and they can, they maybe can or can't get you the terms at their, at their new place. But for, for, you know, that transition single family to multi, you know, smaller multifamily, that's, uh, that's often the way to go with those, with those uh, local banker relationships. Yeah. hundred percent. So, I agree. Yeah. I love it. How has, um, what do you, what do you see? I guess, you know, we're talking in um, September, 2020, you know, COVID has been going on. What do you see for the next kind of six months for your business? Uh, six months. Well, hopefully in the next three, I find that 67 unit deal. Um, yep. the next six months, um, I, I really would like to learn more about syndications. I, I would love to partner on a larger building and do that and kind of experience that and see what it's like. Cause obviously I want, I want to scale, you know, I have a goal of 500 to a thousand units in this market. So I know that it's, it's important for me to scale, important for me to grow. So um, six months, I would say, let's learn more about syndications. <laughs> yeah. Really challenge myself there. I love it. I, and I love that you're kind of freely stating your goals out there. The people that hit those numbers are the people that set them and talk about them. And it, it's, yeah. the, it's the small subset of all the people interested in doing it and want to be doing it and et cetera. There's a couple of people that you can ask them what your target is and they can rattle it off. That Those are the people that are going to do it. And it's, it's an oversimplification, but that's, I've seen it work too many times to, to dispute it. So that's, that's super exciting. Um, if somebody, so thank you uh, for sharing your journey. This is great. I, I absolutely love real estate as a vehicle and that somebody can get into it with no experience and have a lot of success in a short period of time. It's the most exciting thing. Um, if somebody wants to, to learn more about what you're up to or, or maybe be on a future, you know, passive investor prospect list or something like that, is there a, a good way they can reach out and connect with you, Kimberly? 
Yeah, hundred percent. They can send me an email at Kim at reddoorrenovation.com or um, they can find me on social media. My Instagram is Kimberly Marie 920. Outstanding. We'll link to that in the show notes if anybody wants to reach out. Thank you so much for, for joining me today. I really appreciate uh, you sharing your story. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate the opportunity. Awesome. Have a good one. All right. You too. Thank you for listening to the DJE podcast. For more information, please go to djetexas.com.